Let's go together in God's word to 2 Peter chapter 2 and let's talk together today about God's judgment. So about two weeks ago now, I attended Tyler Simmons' mother's funeral. Tyler, a former member of our church, served on our staff for a while, now lives in North Carolina. But Tyler had the task of preaching his mother's funeral. And that's a difficult assignment, no matter the circumstances. But for Tyler, particularly difficult because his mother had been murdered. It's even difficult to say those words. It's difficult to hear those words, isn't it? And so what do you say at your mother's funeral under such circumstances? Tyler so admirably handled that, God clearly enabling him. But one of the things he shared was how much he loved his mother. He talked about his mother's faith. He talked about his mother's kindness, his mom's generosity. Tyler shared about how he was comforted knowing that she's perfectly well in the presence of the Lord. But it was also profound to me as he spoke about the desire for justice in such a situation. So he talked to us there in the funeral about that desire for justice. Where does that come from? It comes from God. We, we want God to make all things right, to put things right. And so our desire for justice is really coming from him. We're created in the image of God and we have that longing for justice. But then Tyler wisely and compassionately shared with his family that it's, it's not our job to get that justice on the earth. That for now, that role has been given to the governing authorities to, to get justice. And he encouraged himself and his family not to be bitter against the man who did this, to not hate the man who did this, leaving that into the hands of God-ordained judgment. And of course, we think about ultimately God himself is the judge. I want you to know I asked Tyler's permission to share that with you. I know that's deeply personal for him. And I told him, Tyler, I'm okay if you don't want me to share that. He said, no, you, you can share it. And I said, we will pray for you. And so would you pray for Tyler as you think about the ongoing grief uh, that their family's going through? But I want us to take to heart, even as we pray for him, I want us to take to heart that word about God's justice. God is just. And I don't know how that makes you feel when you, when you see on the screen that we're going to talk about God's judgment. Some people might be comforted by that. I think rightly so. You think about the tragedies, the evils of this world to know that, you know, God will get it right. Even if we have to wait on justice, it's coming and he'll get it all right. There'll be no injustices left at the end. But you might be here and the idea of God's judgment, you have come to think that that's really beneath God. That that's, that's a primitive idea of God's judgment, that God's not really like that. God is so permissive, so loving. It all works out fine for everybody. That's just not the God I know. But I hope the text today will correct that thinking. This is foundational to our biblical worldview to know God is like this, that God is a judge. So we need to know all the things about God. We need to know together that God is holy and there's nobody holy like our God that God is incredible and infinite in his love. And so it's right to fixate on the love of God because who loves like God? But also he's patient, aren't you glad? He's full of forgiveness. And also we know this, that anybody who will humbly acknowledge their sin before the Lord and turn and trust in Jesus, they can be rescued. We need to know that about God. But we also must know that if a person chooses sin and rebellion 
over repentance and faith in Jesus, God will judge them. That is a clear teaching of Scripture. So we're jumping back into 2 Peter 2. The last time we were in this passage, we were in the context of this warning toward false teachers. We were told about the reality of false teachers, the dangers that false teachers pose to the church, but also the condemnation that God will bring on those who are false teachers. Remember verse 3. We see in verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And now Peter continues that thought. He expands it, talking about God's judgment. Let's go in together now, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. This morning, we want to talk together about this, this God's judgment. And let's understand together that God is the judge. That's the first point I want us to see together from our text. God is the judge. Again, our context is the false teachers, the reality of them, the danger of them, and the judgment God is going to bring to them. Now, can you consider any offense worse in the mind of God than being a false teacher? To lie in the name of God what would, be, what would bring God's judgment quicker than that? To be one who says, I know God says that in the Bible, but I don't believe that. I'm going to tell you a contrary message to what he has revealed. What a horrendous sin that is, inviting the judgment of God. And God's telling us here that that judgment will certainly come. When you lead people away from God and from his truth, you should expect a tremendous judgment for that. That's why it's such a big deal as a church. We call ourselves to be rooted in the truth. Until Jesus comes again, where are we going to stand? On the word of God. We have no other message. We must be committed to the truth of God's word. So last Sunday, I was not here. Joy and I had traveled to Alabama. We were outside of Henniger, Alabama at Happy Home Baptist Church. That's the church that I pastored right after seminary over 25 years ago. And it was their 100-year anniversary as a church. And what a thrill to go and be there to preach at the 100-year anniversary of Happy Home Baptist Church. I love celebrating with them that in all of these 100 years, they have stayed on the Word of God. We reminisce together about those founders of the church 100 years ago. We certainly know that those men and the women involved in that church plant 100 years ago, they believed the Bible, that they believed this gospel, that their salvation through none other than Jesus himself, that's the gospel they preached. And to celebrate 100 years have passed 
And there's a church that's still believing that Bible, still proclaiming that message. They have not deviated from it. That's something to celebrate. In fact, we thought together there in Alabama last weekend of all the churches that have moved off the scripture in the past hundred years, but not Happy Home Baptist Church, still on the word of God. Now closer than Happy Home is Old Powhatan Baptist Church right here in our area, part of the SBC of Virginia. They just celebrated 250 years as a church. What message did they preach 250 years ago? They preached the Bible. They believed every word of the Bible. What gospel do they preach? Salvation in Jesus alone. And what are they preaching 250 years later? Right now, they are meeting and preaching the same Bible, same gospel, reaching their area and also touching the world. That's worth celebrating. And we must do the same until Jesus comes. But contrast that faithfulness with the false teachers. The false teachers who say, oh no, we're wiser than God. We know more than Jeremiah. We know more than Moses. We're wiser than Paul. We're wiser than Peter. We have a better message, a different message. God has told us something different contrary. Can you imagine the judgment that, that that's deserved for that type of desertion from the truth? So Peter here is warning about the grave danger that false teachers are under as the judgment is coming. And Peter gives three examples of how serious this is about how God is a God who indeed judges. The first example he gives from the past is this, God's judgment on disobedient angels. God's judgment on disobedient angels, that's verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So here, this word about God judging angels, we might ask the question, what occasion is Peter recalling here? Which angels? And the answer to that is, we don't know exactly. Uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't give us any more than that, but Peter's recalling, the Holy Spirit leads him to write, there was a time when God judged angels. And it, it could very well be that original rebellion in heaven when Satan led a third of the angels in rebellion that of course they were cast out of heaven and we know they're active on the earth. We engage in spiritual warfare, but it appears from scripture that some of them for, for God's purposes, some of them already enchained in hell awaiting final judgment. So whether, whether these are angels, perhaps Genesis 6, maybe those are angels, maybe not, some say, or these original, this re original rebellion, the point remains the same. God has judged angels for their rebellion. A false teacher shouldn't think that he can get away with it. If God has judged, judged angelic beings, well, why not a false teacher? We're just talking about God being a God who judges. A second example from the past is this, God's judgment in the great flood. That's verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. We read about that great flood in Genesis chapter six through 10. We read about the occasion. Why, God, why did God do that? We read about the rebellion and wickedness on the earth such that God judged his earth. Just a little glimpse into this is Genesis six verses nine and following says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt 
for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them, but I will destroy them with the earth. Perhaps you know that biblical account of that flood. God did indeed destroy the earth with a universal flood. What a strong judgment that was. What a deserved judgment as God looked at his earth and pronounced that is the appropriate act from him to dispense justice. And think with me, what a comprehensive judgment that is. But in that judgment, it was not without mercy. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but there was an ark. There was an appeal for people to be saved by coming to the ark that Noah was preaching at the same time as he was building the ark. So let's just pause there over that great judgment of the flood in Noah's day. And what's the point of that? The point of that flood and us that being in our Bible is not the cute animals going two by two up the plank into the ark. Sometimes we fixate on that. It's in the children's books. It's in the art. And, uh, and that's age appropriate for sure. But the context is what we're to get for that. God judged the earth. What an intense judgment that was. That our God is righteous, he's holy, and sin so offends him that he brings judgment. There's a third example here. God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's verse 6. For if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, when he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Certainly it was godlessness and unbridled sexual immorality. It's a shocking story. We read about it in Genesis chapter 19. God had seen the wickedness of these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was going to, he was going to destroy them. He sends two angels to go in and get out Lot and his family to rescue them. These two angels came in the appearance of men. And when they arrived in the city, they were going to stay out in the courtyard in the square of the city and Lot, knowing his city, said, you, you must come in and stay with me. Again, the people of the city saw these two angels, but did not know they were angels. They looked like ordinary men. But listen to this. Listen to how gross was the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read about this in Genesis 19, 4 through 6. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. This talking about that we might rape them, that we might have an inappropriate relationship. It was a, it was a gross sin that they had in mind. Just an indication of the heart of ungodliness in that city that they would take two people they thought were guests in the city and in homosexual lust, they would act on them like this. Had they been ordinary men, the, the men of the city would have prevailed. The whole city was there. Did you notice that every person to the last man, young and old, had surrounded the house. And these were no ordinary men, though. They, they blinded the men at the door. And, of course, then the men, these angels, went on with their mission. Lot, you have to get out of here. You and your family have to get out of here. God has sent us to destroy this city. And God did indeed destroy the city. After Lot was taken out of the city mercifully, we read this in Genesis 19:24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. We're told following that, that Abraham looked in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah 
And it says this, that the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. We're just making the point that our God judges sin, that our God judges sinners. And be sure that you know that. Make sure that you don't have an idolatry of your mind where you go, well, not my God. My God wouldn't judge. My God's soft. My God's permissive. My God's too, too loving to do that. Then, then you don't know this God, the God of the Bible. You're on your own. You've made up a different one because the God who's revealed himself in the scriptures, the God that the church has, has worshipped for 2,000 years since the resurrection, this is the God who judges. And he's right when he judges, even though it may be hard for us to hear. But here's the point of the passage. Verse 6, making them an example, catch this, of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Did you notice the shift in tense? Past judgment, past judgment, past judgment, future judgment. This is an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So understand, a terrible day of judgment is still to come. God is going to judge current and future ungodly people in the same way he has judged in the past. It's an example for us. So Peter here is not giving a history lesson. He's given a prophecy. He's given a promise. He's given a warning that we should take to heart. A, another judgment is coming in the future, maybe even the near future. So notice with me here as we just consider these judgments of God in the past and consider what's coming in the future, that God is so totally unimpressed with the majority. God never feels outvoted, like, well, if everybody's doing it, I guess I, I can't even say anything about it. So consider with me Sodom and Gomorrah. Did we not read that God destroyed, brought to extinction these two cities, everybody in it, except for those that were rescued out, Lot and a few of his relatives? God's not impressed with the majority. You're not in safety if everybody thinks like you think if you're in rebellion against God. But let's go to the flood. Talk about God not being impressed with the majority in their rebellion. He destroyed everyone on the earth, his earth, his creation. He had the right to do it. He's the righteous judge. That was the sentence, except for those that he rescued, Noah and his family. And so you and I need to, to know that. There is coming another universal judgment for all. Uh, anybody apart from Christ, that judgment is coming. And the church has always taught this. This isn't new teaching, right? You're holding a Bible and you have a New Testament that's 2,000 years old. We're here in 2 Peter. Peter's proclaiming God is a God who has judged. He's a God who will judge. We're, we're not bringing new truth here. This is there. In fact, it's throughout the scriptures. How about the preaching of Paul in Athens in Acts 17, verse 30? Paul preached this. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. A day of judgment is coming. Even for us who are believers in Jesus, we have a different judgment coming for us than the unbeliever. But nevertheless, aren't we taught that we also will give an account of our lives before the Lord? There's a time of evaluation even for the believer in Jesus. Not going to be condemned, not going to hell if you're in Christ, but nevertheless sobering that we will give an account. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So a time of evaluation for believers. But what about the unbeliever? What about the one who's waved off the rescue? Don't want it. Don't believe it. I'm on my own. 
Well, there's a judgment that we read about in Revelation 20. Only unbelievers will be there. It is the great white throne judgment. And I wish you'd bear with me just a few more moments. I want to read this text to you because, you know, we don't talk about judgment a whole lot. Certainly you're not hear about judgment in the culture. Everybody says, it's fine. Everything's fine. But I want you to hear this and let these words sink in deeply. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God is a God who has judged and who will judge. Now think about this with me. When, when people sin, it's very personal to God. It's not some impersonal thing. So, so we love Hindus, we love Buddhists, and if you talk to them about their worldview, they have an idea of karma. Can I remind you, karma is not biblical. I hear this often now, I think more and more among Christians. Maybe they're joking, I can't tell, but those, I believe in karma. Uh, karma is not a biblical concept. Karma is not like our sin. The idea of karma is this, this unbiblical idea, that what you do comes back to you. It's just an impersonal law of the universe. You know, you're gonna reap what you sow. Whatever you put out into the world is gonna come back to you. There's no God really doing that, it's just, just what, you, it was what happens. But that's not the biblical idea of sin. I think of karma kind of like how we, we do, uh, it's not personal, like when you were, if you get a speeding ticket. So after church today, if you're on your hurry to go get some lunch, you're racing down Staples Mill Road and a police officer pulls you over. Uh, you're not gonna apologize to the police officer. I mean, you might, it's not gonna help, right? It's just, you broke a law, posted speed, you're gonna to have to pay a fine. You're not really sorry to that particular police officer. It wasn't between you two. She just broke a law, pay a fine. Neither will you get on the phone with your insurance company. And I mean, I'm so sorry, Mr. Insurance Agent for my speeding ticket. I hope, hope we can be friends. You know, it's not personal. You broke a law, you're gonna to have to pay increased premiums. Neither do you write out a letter to the governor this afternoon. Mr. Governor, your honor, sir, I broke one of your speeding laws. I mean, you don't do that. It's just impersonal, it's just a, that, that's the idea of karma. I did something, it's gonna, I'm gonna have to pay a fine, whatever. But when we sin against God, it's very personal. We see it very clearly when we're Christians. When we sin now as believers, and we've all sinned now as believers, but we sense it now like, oh, Lord, I, I was not thinking clearly. I, I rejected you to, to clearly do with my wise eyes open what you told me not to do. That was a personal affront to you. Would you, would you forgive me? It's very personal. It's not like I did something one day it's gonna come around to me. It's like, God, would you forgive me? Aren't you glad for a personal God that you know through Jesus that you can receive forgiveness from? But our sins are against God. They're very personal. And just understand those who, without Christ, they are still awaiting the judgment for their sins. So are you ready for some good news? <laughs> there is judgment. Oh, but there's a savior. Here's the good news, our God judges, but that same God is the God who saves. This passage also teaches us that. Look at verse nine. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So yes, God knows how to judge. 
and he will perfectly carry out that judgment. But our God knows how to save. And this passage talks about it. Notice verse 5 with me. Speaking of Noah and his family, as God dispensed justice on the earth, we're told here that God preserved Noah along with seven others, his wife, his three sons and daughters-in-law. God knows how to save. Or how about in Lot's circumstance? God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, but he rescued, as verse 7 says, he rescued righteous Lot. Let's think about Lot here a second. Pause with me over verse 8. Can you relate to verse 8? It says of Lot, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Can you relate to that? As you live in this generation, do you find your soul, in a sense, tormented by what you see and hear around you? As you look at all the craziness of this present time and culture, where good's being called evil, evil's being called good, and people are so confused. In fact, I would say this way, be very alarmed if you're not alarmed in these days in which we live. If you've grown at home here and you think, I, I, what's, what's the problem? the prevailing values of the culture, that's me. I, I believe like these people. In fact, there might've been a time when you were more alarmed and you've now become home with all of this ungodliness that's being celebrated and we're being forced to celebrate. If that's not alarming you, this is a perfect moment to say, God, cleanse my mind, bring me back to, to truth, get me into the word. So I hope you can resonate with Lot here where it says here, he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Can you imagine living in Sodom and Gomorrah? I think you can. We live in a time very much like that. But not only being troubled, but we find in Noah an example that while troubled, while saddened, we have a message to preach. Did you notice that Noah was described as a herald or preacher of righteousness? So we can do both of those in our heart. I'm troubled, but I still have the joy of the Lord. I know I'm saved. I have a message of rescue that God wants me to bring. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I have a role here. So, so we want to think about that. Maintain a heart that is troubled. Understand that God has not changed. No matter what the culture says, no matter who votes what way, this word is still true and will be true for all of eternity. And so we stand right here on it with a troubled heart, broken heart for the friends around us. Oh, but we have a message. And the message is that salvation is available. So, so what was Noah doing while he was building that ark, that ark that took years to be build? Peter tells us the Holy Spirit told him, and now he's writing it down for us. He was preaching. He was preaching a message of salvation, that God would spare you. This ark being built, it's an urgent message, and that's our message to a culture perishing around us. There is a universal judgment coming on sin, and we want to call our friends to the rescue that we ourselves needed and we have received. He knows how to judge. He knows how to save. So celebrate that salvation with me, will you? Yes, our sin is personal, but our salvation is personal. When you personally acknowledge your sin and you run to Jesus and say, Jesus, please forgive me. I've sinned against you, but you have done something extreme. You gave your life on the cross for me. I'm trusting in you as my rescue. Oh, we think about it from the scriptures. Lot was saved. He responded with faith and fled the city as God directed, but Lot's wife not saved, looking back. His sons-in-law were not saved. The rescue was offered to them. They didn't take it. Interestingly, Genesis 19, 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. 
they didn't, they didn't believe and they perished. How about Noah? Noah and his family, they were saved. But the rest of humanity, even as he preached, they did not heed the salvation message and they perished. Do you see with me that the ark is a picture of Christ? That there was one way of salvation. God didn't put arcs all over the place. You just choose one. There is an ark. The world rejected it. And here to our generation, to every generation, Jesus has come. And he offers salvation. And our move is to run to Jesus, to flee the judgment to come, get into Christ. Not everybody will embrace the Savior, but here's the personal question today. Will you? Not everybody will be saved, but will you be saved? Will you trust in the Savior? Will you come to him? Using these two Old Testament analogies, will you flee Sodom and Gomorrah and all this generation? I have to be out of that. I can't be like them. Judgment is coming. I'm coming to Jesus out of that. Would you flee to the ark? Who is Christ? I see judgment coming. I'm going to put my faith in Christ. I want to give you some moments to do that. Right here in this moment, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to give you some moments to consider the judgment to come. Oh, and the merciful offer of Jesus to save you if you'll come to him. Let me pray for us.